On Monday of this week at 5.11 p.m., we were all shaken by a 6.1 magnitude earthquake centered just north of us in Zambales. I was in my office, and for 10 seconds, the floor and the walls started shaking, and I ran out as fast as I could to the open courtyard of the church. I'm sure that some of you who work in high floors and high-rises spread across Metro Manila must have been terrified as the buildings would have continued to sway after the earthquake. I've lived here for 14 years, and this is the first time I've actually felt an earthquake, and it was terrifying and something I would not wish to ever go through again. I remember as I was in the courtyard, I looked around, but I didn't see my wife and my three children. I didn't see them run out of the house. In fact, the only one that ran out of the house was our house helper. So after all this was over, I went up to my house and I asked my family, especially my kids, as I entered their room, why didn't you run out when there was an earthquake? They said, Daddy, it was fun. It felt like a roller coaster. Children, no fear. I reprimanded them and I said, the next time it happens, I want you to run out as quickly as possible. If you are able or duck and take cover, especially because the open courtyard of the church is so close to where we live, please take it seriously. For those of us who are more mature and older and understand the risk that is involved in an earthquake, Monday was a reminder of the potential of us experiencing the so-called big one. The devastating earthquake that will cause extensive damage when the West Valley Fault moves. According to Phil Vox, it moves every 400 to 600 years. The last earthquake or shift was 361 years ago, so we are due for one very soon. But it's not only us that is waiting for the big one. People in San Francisco and every other city like Tokyo that sits on a fault line or along the ring of fire is worried and afraid for the so-called big one. And that's why after the earthquake on Monday, our government issued a lot of memos and advisories for us to be prepared for the big one when this little one has warned us to attention. But earthquakes, such as what we experienced Monday, also serve as a one, another warning for another big one. And there is another big one that we need to concern ourselves more with. And it's not an earthquake. It's the ultimate big one when our time on earth is over. We call it death. I'm sure for the vast majority of you, you will not end this life in an earthquake. You will experience something else that will cause your death. And for many, it is their biggest fear in life. For others, it is the source of their unending worry. The hardest part about death is the uncertainty that comes along with it. The unexpected heart attack, the sudden aneurysm, the massive stroke, the dreaded C word, cancer, the airplane crash, a car crash, a gas line explosion, an LPG tank exploding, a random killing, an accidental tree that falls on your head, a typhoon, an earthquake, a heat stroke, a volcano eruption, and the list goes on and on. It is true that we should worry 
about the big one, and we do. We worry, how will it end for us? Will it be painful? Will it be sudden? Will it be agonizing? That's why many people ask me, Pastor, how can I get over my fear of death? How can I get over my fear of how I will die? And I tell them we don't focus on that. Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. We will all go through death. We will all go through judgment. But the real question we should be asking is what will happen to us after we die? What will happen to us one second after our death? Will we pass the judgment of God to enter into heaven? That is the question we should be most worried about. And yet, in that question, if answered correctly, should give us the most assurance we have in this life where we no longer have to fear death. Because if you have this issue settled in your heart, then you and I will not fear death. You and I will not fear how we will die. You and I will not fear what is to come. Because death for us will only be an entrance into what we know to be true. This is such an important lesson that Jesus teaches about it in a parable. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16, we're going to exposit verses 19 to 31. We're continuing our sermon series entitled Masterclass, Learning Important Life Lessons from the Parables of Jesus. And through this parable in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, we want to learn three specific things about eternity, specifically truths about hell. Imagine a sermon that's focused about understanding what hell is like, and yet an understanding of what hell is and what hell is like, hopefully, prayerfully, will give us assurance of the decisions we are making and hopefully it will encourage some of you who are not prepared to enter the life after this to be prepared. Look at me at Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 21 as we give a background to the story. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. In this story, Jesus tells that there is a rich man who enjoys all the good things that this life provides. He has great clothes. He has the best of possessions, and he eats very well. But there is another person in the story who is a beggar named Lazarus. Lazarus is experiencing the worst that this life has to offer. He doesn't have enough to eat. He has sores which are indicative of a disease. He is unable to move. He is having to have his colleagues or friends carry him and positioning him at the rich man's gate to beg for money. He has only one wish in life. It's a sad wish. He wishes while the stray dogs lick him, that mercy would be extended to him, that the rich man would somehow give him some leftover food. 
His only wish in life, imagine that, is that he would get some leftover food. Now, we don't know how generous this rich man was to Lazarus, but it seems from the story that the rich man wasn't very kind to Lazarus. And so we wonder, is, is this a real-life situation that Jesus knows of? Perhaps there indeed was a beggar named Lazarus because in the parables of Jesus, the characters in his story are not usually named. They don't have a name. But in this case, he names the beggar. It leads me to believe that Lazarus the beggar was quite notable to his audience for being just that, a beggar who was sitting at the gate of a rich man who everyone in the community knew. And everyone in the community knew that this rich man didn't treat Lazarus with very much mercy and kindness. Jesus did not out the rich man by naming him, but Jesus knew that everyone in the community would know who this rich man was when he named the beggar Lazarus. Jesus wanted to say something that was very important. If the rich man was indeed kind and merciful, it would have been noted in this story. And Lazarus wouldn't be in this condition for a long time. But yet, he wasn't very kind. We can extrapolate. I want you to hold that thought. Because later on, we're going to see that this has no bearing, surprisingly, on why the rich man is where he is at. Look what happens in verse 22. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Well, it happened in the story that both Lazarus and the rich man died in a relatively short time period from each other. Notice how Lazarus is pictured. He's being carried by angels to a place called Abraham's bosom or to the presence of God. Now, we don't have time to get into the theology behind what is Abraham's bosom, but for simplicity's sake, let's just call it heaven or the place where God is. If you are interested in Abraham's bosom uh, and the study of eschatology, we welcome you to take Theo 4 that will be offered in September on Wednesday evening. But Lazarus, for all intended purposes, is taken up to heaven. The rich man, on the other hand, dies and is simply buried. He is dead, and he is taken to hell and Hades. Now, I want you to listen carefully. The Bible is not teaching that all rich people will go to hell, and all poor people will go to heaven. The eternal destiny of these two individuals were already set when they were living on earth based on their trust in God and in His Word. And so today, there are rich people in heaven, and there are poor people in hell. I need you to understand that. Now, the story will shift from the present world and now move to the afterlife. Now, in this part of the story, we're going to draw out three truths about hell. But as you read it, you may extrapolate certain things that the Bible isn't teaching. And so we should prepare ourselves, especially in this parable, when it's talking about the afterlife, remember, it is a parable. We have to remember the hermeneutics of parables, meaning how do we interpret parables? Remember, parables are to get across a main point. And not every detail in a parable is true to life. Sometimes the details of a parable, like in any other story, are embellished. They are to move along the narrative. 
They are to get across and highlight the main point. So for example, when you see people in hell talking to people in heaven, it doesn't mean that when we die, we can talk to people in hell, or people in hell can talk to us in heaven. It's simply a story. The Bible, in this point, is not teaching the theology of the afterlife. It is simply to move the narrative of the story to get across an important point. I need you to understand that. All right? Let's, move, let's look at verse 23. And being in torments in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man is in hell. He is being tormented. We don't know the type of suffering he is undergoing, but he's indeed suffering in hell. He is able to somehow see the righteous Abraham and Lazarus near him. Again, this is advancing the narrative. It is not a biblical truth that those in heaven can see into hell and those in hell can see into heaven. Look what happens, verse 24. And the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. The rich man asked that Abraham would have mercy on him. To the extent that he recognized someone next to him, Lazarus. Would you send Lazarus to cool my tongue? It's really hot down here. Send someone to help me. Apparently, the rich man knew the beggar while he was living on earth, the beggar's name even of the one who pleaded for him to show mercy at his front gate. And so you're thinking, there's no way. Why in the world would Lazarus help this rich man? This rich man is requesting one thing. He's asking for mercy. He's asking for something he doesn't deserve. That is the very definition of mercy. He's asking on behalf of all those who are in hell, Lord, will you grant mercy to us down here or wherever hell is? That's a great theological question. Will God grant grace and mercy to those suffering in hell? We know hell to be a terrible place. It is a place of eternal suffering. And somehow in our minds we think, well, God is such a gracious God and God is such a merciful God. Maybe, maybe he will help those who are in hell and grant them some relief. What's the answer? Will God grant grace and mercy in hell? Your question, if you have it, is answered in verse 25. Look with me. But... Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Abraham's reply, Rich man, you got mercy and grace while you were living on earth. You got the good things of life. But now here in eternity you are getting what you deserve, and you do not deserve mercy and grace. Lazarus, on the other hand, didn't get very many nice things while he was on earth. In fact, the Bible calls it evil things. And now he is enjoying grace and mercy in heaven. He is being comforted 
by those things for what he endured while living on earth. What's the point here? The point is this, number one, if you're taking notes. Hell is a place where mercy is not extended. Hell is a place where mercy is not extended. And I repeat it again, in hell, God does not extend his grace and mercy. Why? Because it is a place where people get what they deserve. They receive the grace of God and the mercy of God in this life already. But hell is not a place where God extends his mercy. It is a place where you get what you deserve. When one does not place their trust in God's gracious gift of salvation, then in the life to come, they get what they deserve. For the rich man, it was hell. For Lazarus, it was the bounties of heaven. And yet, for many of us, we say, well, that doesn't seem very fair, does it? Eternal punishment? Well, that's just the way it is. Because we've all sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is defined as the things we do that do not measure up to God's standard of holiness. That is what sin is. Every one of us has sinned in our speech, in our actions, in our thought life. And there, listen carefully, there's no amount of good work that erases our bad work. That is a lie of Satan in our world today. That somehow good works will erase our bad actions and our bad thoughts. And because good works do not erase sin, therefore at some point, sin must be paid for. And for many, that is in hell where they are punished for their sin. The Bible says very clearly, the wages of sin is death. The Bible could have said the wages of sin is doing good works. No. The wages of sin is death. So for example, hypothetically, if you, if you kill someone, and then finally after a decade or so, you, you feel remorseful, and you want to make up to the family for destroying their life because you killed one of their loved ones, even if you offer that family 10 million pesos, this very generous good act on your behalf, would that make up for that murder? The answer is no. Because your money, your generosity, your good heart does not restore life. If in your speech you cast lies and aspersions on someone without getting the facts, destroying a character, assassinating someone's character. And then a few years later, you come back and you say, well, I'm so sorry, I said this about you. Can I make restitution? That restitution is a good act, but it in no way fully forgives the words of lies that one has spread. You see my point? Good works has never saved anyone. Good works has never overcome sin. The wages of sin is not good works, uh, overcome by good works. The wages of sin is death. 
And that's why there's no universal book that tells us here is the chart, like an awards chart. Here is the chart for how much good you have to do to overcome this bad. Because that is not how it works. I want you to notice something here in verse 25. There is no mention that the rich man is in hell because he was unkind to Lazarus. Is it there? No. We often assume certain things, but if you look at the biblical text, the Bible is very clear. The rich man is not in hell because he was unkind to Lazarus. The rich man is in hell because he is getting what he deserved. And Lazarus is in heaven not because he was a poor man and no one gave him anything, and so God's making it up to him so he gets to go to heaven. No. There is no mention of that also. Because Lazarus, the rich man didn't take care of you, let me take care of you in the future. That's also not the case. Lazarus is in heaven because of the decisions he made on earth. But the point of Jesus in this parable is to show that there is no mercy extended to people in hell. They in hell get what they are deserving. There is a crazy theology that's working its way amongst the millennials of today. It is a theology very similar to what we call universalism that says because God is a God of love and love wins, right? We hear that phrase all the time, love wins. It is impossible that a God of love would extend eternal suffering to people in hell. At some point, God's going to say, well, you know what? I love you so much, even in hell. Why don't you come up here to heaven? Because love wins. That's what people like Rob Bell advocate. Pastor Rob Bell, who I believe is a heretic for espousing such lies which the Bible does not teach. Absolutely love wins. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, his love for us, his shed blood for us, won over Satan. That's the definition of where true love wins. But a loving God to be fair, cannot let sin go unpunished, right? We always say, God, you need to be fair. Well, God is being very fair. God says, because your sins are unpunished, therefore, no mercy and grace is extended to those who are in hell. We may not like it. We may not like hearing it. But that is what the Bible teaches the second principle, look at verse 26. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Circle that word, fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Abraham mentions to the rich man in the story that even if he would allow Lazarus to quench his thirst in hell, to fulfill his request, it was impossible. Why? Because there's such a great separation, a great divide, a great gulf. It is fixed that those who want to pass from heaven to hell and from hell to heaven are simply unable to cross from one to another. What is the emphasis of this truth? Number two, hell is a place without a second chance. Hell is a place without a second chance. You can't enter into heaven once you are in hell. 
And once you are in heaven, you cannot enter into hell. It works both ways. The Bible is very clear. There is a great divide. You see, some have a notion, because we're all wanting to be kind. Some have this warped notion that if you die and if you've made some wrong decisions in life, you'll have another chance. When you get to hell, maybe you feel remorseful, you get your sins purged, people pray for your quote-unquote soul, that you'll get to go to heaven. For Catholic friends, that's purgatory, a non-biblical teaching. The Bible is so clear here in verse 26. One cannot cross from hell to heaven. There is no second chance. Praying for the souls of those who die does nothing for them. That is the truth of the scripture. That's what it says. That may not seem fair. But my friends, the decisions you and I make today will literally reverberate throughout eternity. You've heard me say that. The decisions we make in this lifetime will reverberate throughout eternity. We are all responsible for the decisions we make. And once you and I make our decisions, God does not owe us a second chance if we make the wrong decision. Does that make sense? I hope you understand that. You remember that game uh, that was a worldwide phenomenon a few years back? It was the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? What a great title to a game show, because we all want to be a millionaire. Who wants to be a millionaire? And the host will banner with the contestant as he asks the questions. And then he will try to cast doubt in the mind of the contestant. Are you sure? Are you sure about your answer? That will go on for a little bit. That's part of the entertainment. But the game show must move on. And so what will the host ask the contestant? Is that your final answer? Is that your final answer? And when the contestant says, yes, that's my final answer, then his answer is locked in. In the same way, when we make a decision about our eternal future, God says to us, is that your final answer? And whatever we answer, that is our final answer. And so if you make the wrong choice and we end up in hell, there's no one to blame other than yourself because of the decisions you and I have made. And yet that decision is so hard for so many. Why? Because we've forgotten the risk. We factor into our decision things that should not factor in to our decision about life and death. Gary Belsky in Money Magazine has this very interesting illustration. See how you would respond. He said, you've been given a free ticket to an NBA basketball game. A free ticket. But there is, at that day, a severe hurricane, a typhoon, that makes driving to the NBA arena risky, perhaps causing your death. Would you go? Someone has given you a free ticket. You've never been to an NBA basketball game. But on that day, there's a typhoon. Would you risk your life to go to the arena? The young ones probably would, but the smarter, older ones would not. We say it's not worth the risk, right? Well, that's the right decision. It's not worth the risk. Well, same game, same typhoon, 
except this time in this scenario, you've paid $500 for the ticket, 25,000 pesos. Now would you go? According to the University of Chicago economist Richard Thaler, he writes, people are more likely to take a risk if they paid for the ticket. But as Thaler points out, the fact that you spent $500 shouldn't matter when you decide between the reward of seeing the game and the reward and risk of getting killed. Does that make sense? The cost of the ticket should not be a factor. The only factor should be, will I die if I drive my car to the arena? But we don't play that game. Two, all two human tendencies now come into play. If you have ever gone to business school, you understand this. The first is the sunk cost fallacy. The idea that having paid for something, you had better not waste it, no matter what the consequence. The second is what we call the theory of loss aversion. The fact that people place about twice as much significance on a loss as on a gain. In other words, they are twice as unhappy about losing the $500 than they are as pleased about making $500. And we see this play out in our community every day. Too many people have built up their lives on this earth. They've invested in building their own kingdom empire and they are afraid that they will lose something if they become Christians that they will lose the things they have worked so hard to get if they live for Jesus Christ. And it should not matter because the Bible is so clear. What is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? We know that verse, but we don't follow it. And that's why it's so hard to evangelize to our community, our Filipino-Chinese community. Why? Not because they're stubborn, which they are, but because they're so successful. Successful people are some of the hardest people to reach for Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're not willing to lose any of their possessions for the sake of gaining eternity. But that's simply such a stupid proposition because those factors of what loss here on earth should in no way play a factor in the decisions of eternity that's why you've heard it me you've heard me say many a times i i pray for our congregation i pray for you i pray that god would not grant you success you say what kind of pastor is that doesn't pray for the success of his church members I pray that God would not grant you success, so much success that your walk with God will be diminished. Because I've seen it, I've lived it. Success and the things of this world draw us away from that which is important. May that be a prayer for yourself. I pray that no success will come upon my life, that it takes me away from my relationship with Jesus because the economic ideas of a sunk cost fallacy and loss aversion principle do not come into play in decisions made for eternity so are you willing to make a decision today 
that will be your final decision regardless of the loss you have to take presently. Because remember, my friends, in hell, there are no second chances. Look at verse 27 to verse 29. Then the rich man said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear about them. Apparently, the rich man had five living brothers, and they all knew Lazarus. They lived in a compound. Send them to my father's house. All five knew Lazarus. Probably didn't help him also. That's my assumption. But the rich man said, Send Lazarus back to them to warn my five living brothers that they should not make this same decision, wrong decision that I've made, lest they end up in the same place of being in hell, tormented. Seems like a great proposition. Look at Abraham's response, verse 29. There's no need because the five brothers who are living all have the prophets of God speaking to them the same message. They've had the message already. Oh, but the rich man has one last proposition, verse 30. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded Though one rise from the dead. The rich man's last plea. If someone comes back from the dead, someone is resurrected and goes back and tells them to repent, they will. Abraham's response, no. They still will not believe if someone rises from the dead because they've already rejected the message from the prophets of old. You know where this is going. In the historical context, Jesus was speaking to the hardness of the people's heart. Even if Jesus resurrects from the dead, they would not believe. In last week's message, we talked about the importance of Jesus' resurrection, his conquering of death and victory over the grave. We talked about how more than 500 people personally saw the resurrected Jesus, how he appeared to people over the span of 40 days before his ascension, and yet in spite of this overwhelming evidence of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the majority still did not believe. It is a picture of the hardness of the human heart to reject God's free gift of salvation. What I want you to see here, number three, is this. Hell is not a place for quote-unquote bad people. Number three, hell is a place where people willfully reject God's gift of salvation. Hell is a place where people willfully reject God's gift of salvation. Let me ask you a question. Are there good people in hell? Are there good people in hell? The answer is yes. There are very good people in hell. There are great philanthropists in hell. There are great scientists and contributors to human technology in hell. There are very, very good people in hell. So the question is, why are they in hell? 
they are in hell because they willfully reject God's gift of salvation. We have in the looseness of our unclear thinking tell people or have told people good people are in heaven, bad people are in hell. And so everyone goes around saying, I'm a good person. I therefore need to go to heaven. I'm here to tell you, my friends, there are both good people and bad people, however you define good and bad, who are in hell. And the reason they're in hell is because they willfully rejected God's gift of salvation. It is that rejection that prevents people from entering into heaven because they are not holy enough. They are not righteous enough, the Bible says, to enter it. For example, if I make a reservation at a hotel for a hotel room, and I go to the front desk, I'm going to check in, and the receptionist gives me a room key card. If I tell the receptionist I don't need it, I don't need the room key card. I've paid for the room. I deserve to go to the room. I've got money for the room. I'm going to my room. We would say, what a foolish man. He won't get into the room. And let's say in his arrogance and pride, he says, I don't need the room key card. And he somehow manages to go to his room in the hotel and he pounds on it. If he tries to kick it down, guess what? It won't open. If you happen to walk by and you see a man trying to get into his room, pounding on it and trying to kick the door down, you ask him, Sir, what are you doing? And he tells you, I'm trying to get in my room. And we ask him, Sir, have you lost your key card? And he says, No, I never accepted it. I have a right to this room. I have the money, and I deserve to be a patron in this room. We'd all just shake our heads and say, what a fool. What a fool. He can stand out there all he wants. That's where he belongs. Well, that is how the picture of salvation works with God. He has given us the keys to heaven, and that key is to accept God's free gift of salvation when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. The wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus Christ had to die on our behalf. And Jesus Christ died for the entire world, and his unlimited atonement was for all. But even though Jesus Christ died for all, we have to accept it, or else it is not applied to us. I hope you understand that. If I were to tell you this morning, I have 2,000 cookies for every person in this church, personally baked by me, because I love you so much. And if you would, after this service ends, would you, before you leave the gates of this church, would you pick up this homemade cookie? If you walk out of the church and get into your car without picking up one of these cookies, whose fault is it? Is it your fault or is it mine? By the way, this is an example only. There are no cookies waiting for you. So don't ask the guard where your cookie is. Some of you have selective listening ears. Whose fault is it if you don't pick up a cookie? Well, it's yours, of course. I have provided enough for everyone. 
And even if you forget or don't remember to pick one up, guess what? That was still a decision on your part. You have rejected this free offer. And so the fault is yours. You have rejected. In the Avenger movie, which is sweeping the world, it's on track to be the biggest movie in history. I know you're worried about I'm going to spoil anything. Don't worry. Your hearts can be assured. It is aptly titled Endgame. And there, for those of you who have been living under a rock, if you don't understand what this movie is about, it's a group of superheroes called the Avengers, and their battle cry is, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Now, I'm not spoiling the movie, but I just want to let you know that everyone dies. Everyone dies. You, you may be mad at me. You say, well, Pastor, you just spoiled it. But I didn't because that's the truth. Whether movie or not, that's the truth of every movie. Everyone dies, whether you're killed in the movie or whether you die naturally. Whether you live really old or whether you're killed by Thanos and his gang, it doesn't matter. Truth be told, that is the end game of all persons in this world. It's not even a game, it's just the end. And I was reminded of this just this week. When you do two ICU hospital visits, emergencies, strokes, you do two memorial services this week, you do one burial, it is a stark reminder that the end is not a game, it is the end. We all die. The question for some of us is, how will we die? It, and it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how we go. Whether death comes in sickness or an accident or an old age or by Thanos, whatever. The most important question is, what is the decision you have made regarding the life after this? For death is simply an entrance for some have to enjoy a glorious life for others, a not so good life. To the unbelievers this morning, if you are still struggling with your faith, we want to walk and journey with you. We want to talk with you because you have to make a decision. If you're going to accept or reject God's gift of salvation, you may be a great person, you may be a good person, and you may be a good person, even gooder than me, if that was a word. But you're not going to heaven because you're a good person. You're going to hell because you rejected God's gift of salvation. For those of you who are believers, perhaps an application for you can be that you have a decision to make also. Are you going to live to accept or reject God's rewards by choosing to live for Him? Forgetting what you've built up in this world, but living a life for Him because the eternal question, the end game question that we simply are not just to watch a movie about, but to ask ourselves, what is our end game? Are we ready for it? Hell is a place where mercy is not extended. 
It's a place of no second chance. It's a place where people willfully reject God's gift of salvation. If you don't want to go to hell, then you need to make your decision today. The big one can come at any time, and I'm not talking about an earthquake. Death can come in your life, even as you drive home this afternoon. Even in the next hour, I'm not being morbid. I'm just being truthful to you. Death, accidents happen all the time. I was reminded again of this Thursday. It's late in the evening. I'm driving home from Cloverleaf Mall back to Grace Village, turning left on Gate 3. I don't know what it is, but another motorcycle hit my car. I don't know what it is about my car that seems to attract motorcycles, but if you heard the story from two weeks ago, you know what I'm talking about. I'm making that turn into the village, and then boom, I hear something quite loud. I thought I had run over a stray cat or a stray dog. We didn't see anything. But then I look to my left. It's not a stray. It's another motorcycle on the ground with two people. I'm thinking, Lord, again? Why again? When we check the security camera, we realize that this unwise man, we'll call him a fool, with his wife sitting behind him, thinks that it is wise to try to overtake me on my left-hand side without headlights at 10 p.m. And he says to me, I didn't know you were going to take a left. First of all, you do not overtake someone on their left side. It is what we call the blind side. And I don't know how it is, but praise God that it hit at such an angle that he didn't slip under my car. It's his fault, and yet I still gave him money. That's a different sermon for a different time. But for him, as I put myself in his shoes, and I realized, you know what? We all make foolish decisions. A split-second decision to overtake someone on the left instead of the right side could have caused his death very easily. And yet, it can happen at any time. Do we fear those things? No. We shouldn't. We shouldn't fear when the big one comes. Because if the question of our life after this has been settled, our hearts can be assured that if the big one does happen, called death, it is an invitation and an entrance for us to go to glory. May that be your attitudes this morning as you prepare yourself for the big one in your life. How will your end game happen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is a stark reminder from a very hard parable to listen to of the realities of this life. Many of us have pushed away that decision Many of us have taken lightly hell. We don't think much about it. We think a gracious God 
will give us another chance. But you who gave this parable is very clear. The decisions we make in this life, we must be responsible in the next. May all those this morning who have not trusted in you as their personal Savior, the one who died in their place, and by believing in Him we have eternal life, may those who have not made that decision be unsettled in their hearts until they make a decision to accept or to reject. And for those who have made that decision to accept, may we with greater fervency call out and reach a world that needs to know that it's not about good and bad. It's about acceptance and rejection. The penalty must be paid. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the penalty for my sins and our sins. In Jesus' name we pray.